forcing someone to read or forcing someone to accomplish something will always be temporary. But if you can inspire someone to want to accomplish something, it typically ends up being there for the rest of that person's life. Our guest today is Magnus Grimland. He's the founder and CEO of Antler, one of the most active venture capital firms who aims to invest in 6,000 startups by 2013. Your husband, father, founder, CEO of Antler, and uh, Iron Man Runner. What are these few key moments in your life that define who you are today? I grew up on the countryside in Norway in a tiny place called Holm outside of Sandlev. It was about 100 people in a small community, about 10 kilometers to the closest store. If you look at Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, any amazing entrepreneur, they've just been incredibly ambitious. Apparently the success of Facebook was huge, but behind the scene was a complete mess. He still had to make compromises when he first came to the market. And that's how it is. Yeah. It's just like you're trying to pull things together. For the first year or two of a business, typically the only people that are driving the business forward is you. And then you get a co-founder and then you're dependent on two or three people. If those two or three people are able to put 70 effective hours into a week, it has a tremendous impact on the business. Doing answer is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. I probably could have started a few years earlier. Do you believe in destiny? I don't believe in destiny in the traditional sense. I believe that, uh, you know, luck is when uh, the right opportunity meets great preparation. Absolutely, that's right? it, yeah. And one should expose oneself as far as possible to as many of these opportunities as possible. So if you're never exposed to opportunities, you can never grab them. How much do you think having a delusional sense of self-belief is important in that moment? Welcome to the podcast, Magnus. Thank you. How are you doing? Very good. How was the week? Great. Did you travel or did you stay here? Or I'm staying here uh, because on Sunday, the world's best long-distance triathletes are coming to town. Gustav Eden, Christian Blumenfeld, they're fellow Norwegians and in between themselves, they're Olympic champions, uh, world champion and Ironman, world champion, half Ironman. So uh, the, there's a race on Sunday. I'm taking part. I won't be close to these guys, but uh, uh, it's good not to be uh, jet-lagged the week going into the race. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely helps. Um, what's the name of the race? Because I've, I think I have a friend of mine who is training for that. He's a PT here. We went to do like a crazy training last Sunday and he was saying he was preparing for something. It might be that actually. Might be that. It's called the PTO. It's the Professional Triathlete Organization. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's in Marina Bay Sands. So we're swimming in front of the, the towers, which is going to be fun. Yeah. Amazing. So you've been into sport for a very long time. Well, uh, you know, growing up in Norway, it's, it's what people mostly do growing yeah. up. So, you know, I, I did a bunch of cross-country skiing and, um, and football growing up. And then um, uh, as most Norwegians do, and they do here in Singapore as well, I joined the military after high school and uh, tried out for the Norwegian Navy SEALs. So I was in the Navy SEALs for a while. And uh, this is just a way to kind of keep in shape post mm. being more professionally involved in keeping fit. <laughs> you say as most Norwegians do because it's mandatory or because that's what you guys do. For example, in Switzerland, I'm Swiss. Like we have to go to the army for one year. Yeah. So in Norway, it's mandatory by law, but um, it shifted a bit. So, you know, obviously during the Cold War, everyone had to do it, um, like here in, in Singapore. Now, if you don't want to do it um, and you don't get called up, uh, you don't have to do it. If you get called up and you don't want to do it, you can just do badly on your tests and the military doesn't want to. So literally right now, the military only wants people who are motivated yeah. to go in and do it. Um, 
but um yeah we have a long history of uh of uh, you know my 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 father was there my both my grandparents were there uh, my two brothers my one of my brothers is still there my son just started this summer so it's a okay generational thing <laughs> okay so your your son is is not based here he's based in singapore but he moved uh back to norway to serve in the military okay very interesting is it something that's like is is his own wish or is like a tradition thing that you want your kids to to go through because you think it was very useful for you or i mean it was perfectly his choice so um, okay you know i i asked him multiple times if he didn't just want to go straight to college but uh he he really wants to do it and it's it's taken on a little bit more relevance over the last few few years than it it was just five years ago very interesting because i if i look at so i, I did my for me was that in switzerland you could find i had a operations for both knees because I used to do a lot of sport, a lot of tennis, uh, national, international and everything. And I, I I had both meniscus broken. So I had operations and I really used that because I was like, there's no way I'm going to lose one year. I want to go to university and then I want to, to build a company and everything. But um, I managed to skip it and go straight to university. And that, that, the, 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 the argument was really saying, I want to study and I want to do greater things in life. And like, I, I don't have one year to lose. Uh, so it's interesting that you were saying that that you actually almost push him to say, hey, go go to college. And uh... I mean, I I think he's great at his doing it, and always been obviously incredibly supportive. And you know, if you ask me, that you know, I think it's the right decision. But at the same time, it should be his decision and not mine. So that's uh, so. Therefore, you need to keep let him keep the options open. But now he's there and having a great time. If you have to think about the the few. Um, key turning points in your life that define who you are today as Magnus sat in front of me uh, on this podcast in Singapore in 2023 as a husband, father, founder, CEO of Antler and uh, Ironman runner. What are these few key moments in your life that define who you are today and change your life traje trajectory? Yes, so um, I think the first Time. So I, I grew up on the countryside in Norway, so in uh, in a tiny place called Holm outside of Sanda, which is also the Drammen, which is outside of Oslo. So it's uh, it was about a hundred people in, in a small community, about ten kilometers to the closest store. Um, we were on kind of what had been a smaller farm. Um, my father was a um, professional uh, husky sledger, um, so we were we had thirty huskies and. You know, we spent all of our time in, in the woods. Um, and um, um, I remember quite well, I was about seven or eight years old. And uh, uh, one of our family members, my great grandmother, passed away. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot of people have similar type experiences. But at an early age, when you experience someone you've known for a long period of time, uh, not being there anymore, um, it makes you s start thinking about, what's the meaning of everything and why are we on this earth and so on. And, and obviously there are many answers to that question. Um, and my mother tends to be a bit more on the spiritual side, while my father is more of a, uh, you know, on the, on the communist side of the specter. Um, so they have very different answers, right? You know, there might be something after life, there might not be. Um, and uh, I started thinking a lot about it and, 
at, at that least, young age. At that young already. age. And, wow. uh, you know, I did for the next few years. And, uh, you know, quite early on in life, started thinking about, uh, you know, at least, you know, you know where you're going to be here most likely if 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 things don't go go wrong for the next 70 years. Uh, one, one might as well try to um, do something impactful with those years. And I think that, you know, starting to think about that uh, at that age, uh, slowly started building, you know, a ton of drive, right? Um, and uh, so that, I think, was one kind of pivotal moment. Another pivotal moment was... I was, we were up in, uh, so we have a place up in the mountains in Norway where my father grew up. And it's an even smaller community where you can't even get by car. You can only get there by train. It's called Finsa. And we were there lighting up the, the fireplace. And I saw this, I think at the time I was 12 or 13, I saw this article about United World Colleges. Obviously in Singapore, United World Colleges is quite well known because there's two of the schools there. I read an article about the school in, in the UK, which is at an old castle called St. Donald's Castle. Looks a little bit like the Harry Potter University. And the Norwegian Queen was there staying and she was talking about how people came in from all across the globe and they were living in this castle for two years and, and studying. And um, I, you know, instead of lighting up the newspaper, I read this article and, uh, you know, kept it and went back to my school the next Monday when we came back and said, hey, I want to go there. Um, and uh, they said, well, you're way too young. And by the way, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's only about 20 scholarships and there's hundreds of people applying. So, you know, why don't you work on, on kind of doing the right thing so that when you apply... When you're 16, you might have a chance to get in, they said. And, and that became a bit of like a, a, a drive for me to mm -hmm. accomplish. So, you know, on top of doing a bunch of sports that I'd always done, um, you know, I worked on the right things in, in, in school. And, and for these United World Colleges, they also care a lot about service to the community. And, uh, you know, so, so um, they some work with the Red Cross and, and other parts and, and then applied in, in, in when I was 16. And, got one of the scholarships and uh, ended up, you know, then being, you know, leaving this, this community in Norway, going to school with people from 82 nations, living together for two years in this castle and, uh, and uh, doing the IB basically. And then obviously the world opens up in an entire different way, right? Did you sort of analyze all the sort of... Um criterion that you would have to fill in in advance to know, okay, for example, you know, Red Cross or like internship or all this stuff. So I just have the whole list. Therefore, they're more likely or almost obliged to accept me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's almost taking it as a game. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, um, I think in general, there are parts of life which are preparatory and there's parts of life where you, you, you follow your passion, right? And, and if you spend your entire life only doing exactly what you want to do at that particular point of time, uh, it's going to be hard to reach something that is bigger than that. So I think there's, there's, you know, there's preparatory phases and there's executional phases uh, of one's life. And obviously that was a preparatory phase. So it's quite exciting. But where do you think this, because this is like an understanding of someone who is already very mature, I would say, you know, so ah, this is my preparatory phase, but then like there is or what's going to happen afterwards. Where do you think this curiosity comes from? Especially if you are from a village, 
of 100 people. I come from a village of like 800 people in Switzerland. Yeah. But like, where is it from? You know, is it just something that's like innate? You were born with that? I think, I think it literally, you know, it's probably multiple different factors, but it definitely came from that moment I spoke about earlier, which okay. is like, so, you know, that's made me start to think a lot about um, the future and what I want to achieve. And I think, you know, you know, probably there are some people listening who also have kids and, um, you know, when you have kids, it's very hard to know where they will end up, what they will end up doing and, and how can you be a good parent in terms of, of, of ensuring that people get a great future, mm -hmm. right? And obviously there are parents who spend a lot of time with their children doing all the right things. And even after that, the children ends up having not such a good life. And there are children who have been abandoned their entire life and somehow gets tremendous amount of inspiration and ends up doing incredibly well. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very hard kind of thing to think through. But I think one of the things, from my own experience and what I see in friends and also what I see in my own children and, and my son now that is this 19 is the most important thing is to at some point of time throughout a childhood getting inspired about something, right? And you don't know what that inspiration will be, right? So I think for me, it was this particular moment, right? You know, you know, got to ask my son for, for what his was, but, you know, obviously throughout um, his life, we, we've been, you know, traveling across the globe we've been, you know, to India, we've been to all of Europe, US, various places, read a lot of books, seen a lot of movies, all these types of stuff. And, and, um, and you never know when inspiration will come from, from, from him. It came a little bit later in life. This is just my opinion. You got to ask him, opinion. but like we went to the British museum with him when he was, I think 12 or something. And then, when you're in the British Museum, you see all these this spectacular kind of archaeological things that they found all across the globe. And through that, we ended up watching the Indiana Jones movies. And through that, he got interested in reading up on history. Mm. When you start reading up on history, very quickly you get into biographies. And then you start reading biographies. And once you start reading biographies, there are certain people that inspire you somewhere or another. Mm. And then... He went from, I think, having a little bit less direction to, you know, uh, being very clear of kind of where he wanted to go and just graduated top of his school in Singapore and is now in the military and got in some great schools in the U.S. And you just never know when that will come. But I think as a parent, one of the things that one needs to do as parents is expose people to moments of potential inspiration. Absolutely. So expose your kids to as many people and places as possible from a young age, even if sometimes they kind of hurt themselves, because that's where the sort of aha moment yeah. might come and like give you a drive for later in life. Yeah, because yeah. like forcing someone to read or forcing someone to accomplish something will always be temporary. But if you can inspire something to inspire someone to want to accomplish something, it's it typically ends up being there for the rest of that person's life, right? Mm -hmm. So you went to Harvard, mm -hmm. right? You studied same class as Mark Zuckerberg, Eduardo Saverin, co-founder of Facebook. I think you were rowing or with the Winklevoss twins who were pretty big figures in the crypto space, also involved in the beginning of Facebook. How do you think this Harvard and university experience 
shaped you and impact you for the for your future i mean it's it's an incredible place with uh, you know incredible people um the most important thing are, are is are the people there right so i i think you know the the people that i went to school with the people we went to class with the professors the people who came visiting um you know the reading is the same anywhere, really, right? Like you read the same books and you study the same courses, but the discussions you end up have, having with really interesting people is 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 amazing there. Um, and this is what I, you know, tried to tell other people as well. Is like, you know, that can actually be replicated in a lot of different places, right? You actually don't need to be at when you end up at Harvard. It it happened to be so that the selection and admissions committee there. Uh, selected a lot of interesting people and, and thereby you kind of have it all around you. But, you know, you can create those communities in Singapore, you can create those communities almost anywhere in the world. Uh, I think it's about, uh, you know, spending your time with people you can learn from, be inspired from, that are doing other things that are driven. And in most communities across the globe, you find people like that and you can create these this similar type of settings. But that that's that's what made kind of Harvard really interesting for me. You you follow the, I still, you follow the pretty, I'd say almost like classic path for bright student, which is I go for an Ivy League school, then I go for McKinsey, and then I jump on the entrepreneur entrepreneurship train. <laughs> and so what's really interesting is things, that was probably about 20 years ago, right? Things change a lot with the internet, the, the, the barrier uh, to, uh, for entry for, for entrepreneurship, building businesses lower than ever before. Technology changed a lot. So if you, let's say you meet your 18 years old self today in 2023, what would be your advice to 18 years old Magnus regarding what education and life path to choose? Would you still do the same or would you do something different based on how everything changed? You know, it's when you look at these things in retrospect, it's very hard to um, to to think about doing things differently because one is in a place right now. You know, now you know I have th three kids and we're building a really exciting global innovation platform, and um, just feel like I'm in an incredible place. I'm very lucky, um, and if I did things differently. I might not have been there, yeah. right? So, you know, you know, so it's that's that's the you know. So therefore you might not want to change anything. But at the same time, what are some of the learnings on the way? I think um um I think uh there are uh certain things certain things one can do quicker, right? So for example, um I was at Harvard for four years. I couldn't have been there for three years. And mm. probably the experience would have been somewhat the same. Mm. And the network and the people I know and all that. Um, I was at in McKinsey for five and a half years. Um, and I knew I wanted to build a business after. And I'm not sure staying there two extra years necessarily equipped me to be a better entrepreneur. Um, um, Antler, doing Antler is something I've been wanting to do for for a long time. I probably could have started a few years earlier, but you know, this is really the only things I probably would have done differently. Do things a little bit quicker, you know, have children quicker, 
uh, start a business quicker. Um, you know, but at the same time, I, I don't think I'm kind of talking too much of a too too much of a time difference, right? So, um, the, I I like to. I can talk a little bit about how I normally kind of plan those things if it's if it's interesting. For me, first, like, do you believe in destiny? Because all these things, these people you meet, like, or do you think do you really believe like, no, I don't really believe in destiny. Like, I make I made all this stuff happen, and that's why I'm here where I am today. I I don't believe in destiny in the traditional sense, but I believe in. Um, You're more that, like your father of thinking of your father than your mother. No, no, I believe in. <laughs> I believe that uh, you know luck is when uh, the right opportunity meets great Pre preparation, absolutely, that's, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, all through life, there are so literally there are you know I think one can get more and more prepared to take great opportunities, and one should expose oneself as far as possible to as many of these opportunities as possible, right? Like so, if you're never exposed to opportunities, you can never grab them. If you get exposed to a lot of opportunities but you're not ready to take any of them then, um, you know, we don't really get anywhere. So, like, I think it's important to, to, to get exposed to a lot of opportunities. And the only way to do that is, is to reach out to, to people around you that, um, uh, that you think are inspiring. And then um, put yourself in situations where you meet more people like that. And then uh, be prepared to take them. Can you give some examples, personal examples, that really changed the game for you? Yeah, so... Um, so, so take take the example I made earlier about United World Colleges and the scholarship I got to United World Colleges, right? You know, I am um, uh, uh, if 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 I didn't read newspapers, I wouldn't even have heard about it. So you know, uh, that you know, a way to see opportunities is to read read the news, see what's going on, right? You know, then and then uh, you will there will be plenty of opportunities there people you can then reach out to that are that are interesting i think that's a good example um when it comes to and then it all kind of it, it all comes on top of each other and i ended up going into um um uh you know united World colleges and ended up being in the military but a lot of my friends at united World college i ended up at harvard and i mm -hmm. remained in contact with them so they inspired me to to put an application to harvard so you know once you start kind of exploring and taking some of these opportunities, then uh, a bunch of others will come. Do you think that students or teenagers who are who are smart in terms of you know school grades and all that stuff, but have entrepreneurial um, aspirations, should go to college? I think it depends. So, um, um, I think you you can go either way. We have we backed a bunch of really great entrepreneurs through Antler who are very young. We, our the youngest founder we backed seventeen, didn't mm -hmm. even start university. Um, and there are great examples of people who have gone that way. And then there are great examples of people who left halfway through college and built great things, like Mark Zuckerberg and, mm -hmm. and Bill Gates, obviously who were. Who were Zuckerberg was part of my class, and Bill Gates actually came back and got his honorary degree as our uh, as our uh, commencement speaker. So he finalized his degree when I left college, <laughs> <laughs> but it was he dropped out when he was there. So, and then there are great people who have gone through through college and 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 done it. I I I think that um, 
I think in general, the earlier you start to build something, the better. Um, Why? Uh, because you learn a tremendous amount more from building than and doing anything else. Um, at the same time, it's a very risky business, right? So there are, you know, 90, 95%, 90, possibly more percent of all startups fail and people have tried seven, eight, nine times. Um, so I, sometimes I think it also depends a little bit kind of where you come from, right? So, um, there are, I think, people growing up uh, across the globe where, you know, if you think about security in life, right, as you, as you move forward, like, what's your baseline, right? I thought about this, like, growing up as, like, after the military, my baseline was working in the military, right? I knew after I got selected to Navy SEALs and I was part of the Norwegian Navy SEAL unit that, you know, um, I could probably always go back and work in the Norwegian military. And then after college, yeah. uh, you know, the baseline mm -hmm. was okay. You, you can you can get this 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 type of job. I don't think that's always smart thinking unless you really need it. But I think there are you know it's very easy if you come from kind of a more comfortable upbringing to 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 think that everyone can take the risks that you can. But hey, you know, some people grow up in uh in a slum in mumbai or on the countryside somewhere and they their parents don't have money or they have siblings they might have to take care of or they um you know they get children at an early age and this type of stuff right and then obviously you can build a baseline which will be your kind of lowest fallback absolutely right yeah. so that's so, that's an advantage i think of college but in general if you have the opportunity to and you can take that risk i think the earlier the better yeah, or finish. Uh, for, for me, it was always at home. It was I was like, I want to start a, a, a company. My father was like, I want you to do a master because he was he had a great career in a big corporation and it kind of not having a master yeah. stopped him where he wanted to go even further, right? Yeah. And so that was the rational. It's the same rational. It's like, do, do your study, do your bachelor, do your master, then do whatever you want, but at least you have this baseline uh, in case it doesn't work out and um, actually it makes a lot of sense. And I went to look for the masters that were only one year. Yeah. So I could start a, a business faster, <laughs> yeah. basically. But it's a very, it's a very logical and rational way to, and because at the end of the day, it's how, how do you calculate risk? How do you take ca calculated risks? And in entrepreneurship, that's exactly the way. Yeah. If you're an employee, you might start a side hustle and like start to make money on the side and then transition from one to the other to almost take no risk. Yeah. Or if you say, I want to start a, 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 a company, I'll go and I'll, I'll, I'll finish my degree first. So at worst case, I'll take a job, but I already have the experience of building this company, which probably will give me 10 times more experience than someone else would be doing a normal job in the same field because, because I got screwed a couple of times, fell back, got back up my feet and um, very, very logical, very rational, yeah. Yeah, so this this I also recommend, you know, for the for the people who are a bit younger. It's like I started my first business uh by I literally bought a bulb and 20 eggs. And then we used the light bulb to make the eggs into chicken. The chicken started making eggs, and I sold I sold about two dollars worth of eggs every day. Uh, right? With two dollars at the time, you know, in 1986, seven, eight, nine, it's actually you know, but at that age as well, it was a reasonable amount of money. It was more money than my my friends were earning, and uh, and you learn some something from that, right? But you could easily do that, 
at the young age. Um, and then in college, we started a couple of companies. I started a real estate company and another, uh, you know, internet platform. You know, they both turned out reasonably okay. They were nothing big, obviously, nothing like um, Zuckerberg's uh, trillion-dollar empire. But uh, you learn a lot from that as well. Mm. Now, the other thing I did learn from that, though, is like if you really want to build something, um, it's hard to do as a side hustle. and. Mm you might build the wrong habits as doing as a side hustle. At some point of time, if you really want to build something, you need to do like you've done and I've done a um, couple of times where you just go Take the lead. all in. And, uh, and that's what I tell our founders as well is, you know, got to front load. It's like the, the most important part of building a business is the first year or two. And unless you spend 100% of your effective time doing it, it's it's very hard to 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 make progress how, how much do you think having a delusional sense of self belief is important in that moment i think it's it's um you know i think it's very important but i don't think it's delusional right so like i think people are very ambitious right so if you look at take andrew as an example right we've always had incredibly ambitious targets um and we never meet them we meet 70 80% of them Mm -hmm. uh, um, if you look at Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, you pick any um, amazing entrepreneur, their ultimate goals have actually not been delusional. They've just been incredibly ambitious. And then they've never really gotten there, right? Like, you know, Elon Musk is always three to four, five, six years behind Uh, yes, yeah. you know, the targets, yeah. Steve Jobs, you know, <laughs> when he first started looking at building the iPod and the iPhone, you know, technology wasn't even there, right? Like it's just technologically impossible to, to create this vision. And when he still had to make compromises when he first came to the market. Yeah. Right? I think he talks about this, uh, this first keynote presentation about the iPhone yeah. that he had to use uh, multiple iPhones because nothing was working, <laughs> yeah. but you just wanted to make it look as it works on the surface. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's a really interesting point. Even, um, um, I heard some people who went to, uh, Y Combinator who said, oh, for example, Mark Zuckerberg came and talked to everyone there and he explained how much apparently the success of Facebook was huge, but behind the scene, it was a complete mess. And that's how it is. Yeah. It's just like you, you're, you're trying to pull things together, but like basically nothing is working or almost nothing is working. And you're just, uh, you're basically a fireman or a firewoman. Like there's a fire there, fire there, fire there. What's the biggest fire? I need to take care of this one first. And that's basically your job all day long, yeah. all, all lifelong, basically. Yeah. So, so I think um, an important aspect of that building a business is um it's i like to call it front loading and i think a lot of people don't don't think about it as much but i think it's incredibly important um so for the first year or two of a business particularly the first few months uh typically the only people that are driving the business forward is is you right you know uh the first first few months of antler if i didn't do anything nothing happened. If I went to the movies in the evening, nothing happened. If I went out and got drunk at night and was hungover the next day, nothing happened. And that's how it is with a business. And then you get a co-founder and then, you know, you're dependent on two or three people. And uh, 
if those two or three people are able to put 70 effective hours into a week or 100 effective hours into a week um, versus 20, it has a tremendous impact on the business. It's literally like having 5x the amount of employees, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, and at the same time, um, momentum builds momentum. So if you're unable to create that early momentum in the business, it very quickly dies. Right. So if you combine those two aspects of the only people being able to drive the business forward in the beginning is the co-founders and that momentum is so important, right? Like seven, eight, nine, ten years into business life, momentum matters less. Like you grow five, ten percent per year, you still have a good business. But in the early days, you gotta have an insane amount of momentum. And um And therefore, I think founders need to always think about exchanging time in the future for time right now. Like, it's not always all that healthy to think that way, but as a founder, you have to, right? You know, there's two or three years where you kind of need to call all your friends, call your parents, tell your kids, say, you know, it's it, this is a spe specific period of my life where I'm going to be 100% dedicated to this thing I'm incredibly passionate about. And I think founders who don't do that more often than not, don't get the momentum to get the business really off off the ground, and uh, so it's it's front loading. It's the opposite effect of kind of studying to exa an exam, where you, you know, a lot of people tend to not study so much throughout the year, and then just before the exam you crunch for mm -hmm. two days, right? But for a business, you gotta think exactly the opposite way around, because right now, you know, now we're five and a half, six years into Antler, my time just don't matter that much anymore. Yes, mm -hmm. sure, I can help drive the business forward. But now the business would be perfectly okay without me. Obviously, this is a very business way to justify all the hours you put in towards your family. You can then tell them, oh, look, if I do that now, in three years, we're more likely to have, I'm more likely to have time for you guys. And we're more likely to have a better life quality. But it's still a very, very business way. And the, the problem, I'd say, is not a problem, but people who are inclined to put that much effort earlier on into the business, today they have less effort to put in, probably are going to do something else and repeat the same process over and over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, I, I guess what I'm, I'm not saying that you, you should, you should, if you have children, you should spend some time with them. Um, that's incredibly important. I try to do that in the morning and between, um, uh, you know, six to seven thirty every night, and then during the weekends uh, while they're awake. I think that's incredibly important. You need to to train. You need to sleep. You need to do these things that um, that keep you effective. You should maintain a great group of friends and value your family. Mm. But you should take away all the other waste out there, uh, and focus all of that into your business over the first kind of year or two. Can you give examples of what you mean by wastes? Like, um, uh, Netflix, <laughs> uh, soling off, lying around on the sofa, um, uh, drinking, drinking, partying, partying. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I understand it completely. Like it makes the massive difference. If you remove these useless things, you, you're going to compound so much in time, this time that you... Yeah. And it's not only I have more time to do something productive and useful. It's also 
most of these things are actually detrimental to my health. Yep. And therefore, I'm going to be even less good at what I'm yep. doing during the day. Yep. Yep. And then you can choose, and then you can choose to do it for a select period of time. Like mm. you can choose to do it for two to three years until we have a great team in place, and then you can work a little bit less. But I think, and some people do that, right? So take Sergey Brin and a couple of the Google guys. Mm. You know, they they chose to build a company, work incredibly hard for a long period of time, build one of the most amazing companies in the world, and then they decided to kind of do less, mm. right? And then you have other people like Elon Musk who will always be in that front-loading phase, right? Like things things never change. And then you have everything in between. But at least at that point of time, you have a choice, mm. right? So, you know, three to four years into your business, five years, six years, seven years into your business, you have a choice if you built a good business. But if you don't put it in up front, you don't have a choice because you'll never get there, right? So, so front-load is... Front-loading is a necessity as a founder, I think, to succeed in building a great business. Mm. You talked about your kids quite a lot since the beginning of this podcast. How much do you think, I mean, how much does or did have your first kid change your definition definition of success in life? Well, so, I mean, for me, it was different because I, uh, I had, I had uh, my first kid before college. Right? It's 19 okay. right now. Um, so, you know, it's kind of always, well, in my adult life, it's always been a part of my life. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I do think uh, that obviously meant that, uh, you know, that part of your life has been a little bit different, right? So, for example, when, you know, my friends in college went for, for spring break, I went home and changed diapers. So, was, you know, so, so you know, uh, Probably made but they, you much more mature, much faster. But the incredible thing with this, and I, you know, my greatest learning was I, I, it's such an amazing thing to have kids early on in your life, right? You know, imagine you know, I was I was 22, uh, you know, he's now 19, I'm 43. We go on runs together, we go and watch the same movies, we read the same books. Uh, there's been like a long period of our life where we literally had the same interests, uh, you know. I find what he studies for his IB and physics and math, like fascinating to go back and do these things mm -hmm. together. Right. You know, so, so you, you get to kind of, and then obviously, um, so there's this kind of bad part of getting kind of kids early, but the good part is just so much greater. Um, uh, you know, because we got to live that young life together. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, you understand you get, each other basically. You yeah. understand him. You're not disconnected as yeah. someone who is much uh, older if you and get, not curious. If you get, would be. Kid, I mean, there's not everyone should have have kids whenever they want to have them. I don't think when is a but but again, that's entrepreneurship. I think the earlier the better. Mm. Um, um, and now it's is different. We have now a two and a half and and uh, two and a half year old and six months old and and obviously now it's a whole completely different environment. You know at when uh, when my first son was born, we didn't have any money, hadn't built anything, mm. still a college student. Um, now, obviously, we we have different economic environment. You have more help. So you get to spend more quality time. But at the same time, obviously, you think about the future, right? You know, um, when they are the same age as, um, as Leo is my son, I'll be... Uh, you know, in my 60s, mm. right? So I'll be a different type of parent. <laughs> Maybe still running an Ironman. Hopefully. 60 plus. Hopefully. 
<laughs> what what would you say to the potential entrepreneur out there who is not starting because she's afraid of failing? Yeah, I don't think anyone should not start because of that fear, because um, um, it's almost any founder out there has failed at some point in time. Um, and um, and you learn a lot from it. And the worst case scenario, you try one more time. Um, so I wouldn't go in and be afraid of that. What I think is more important is um, you got to change that mindset when you get started because so the most important the, the most important thing to do first is decide to do it like don't let that fear hold you back and then once you decided to do it get rid of the fear um, because um, if you have this mindset that you might fail if you have this mindset that failure might be an option when you're building a business that will seep in when you hit very difficult moments in building and it might convince you to stop. Um, and a lot of great businesses didn't succeed because their founders gave up on the way. And like very often it's not the best team that wins, but it's the most resilient team. And, uh, and you need to build that mindset going into building something because if you go into building something, being afraid of failing and thinking that you might fail, the likelihood of failing will just be much, much higher. How do you get rid of this fear? So um, I think it depends from every individual. Like I, I've had a couple of different experiences, but it's a one is obviously when I was doing the, the military stuff, because, you know, in, 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 in the SEAL training, there's, you know, I think there's 700 to 1,000 people who want to tr try and do it every year. And in Norway, there's eight to 10 people who get through. So the likelihood of failure is you know, 99.2% or something like this. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so my mindset there was just thinking that there, you know, I, I put myself in a box where there's no other option, right? Like you, mm. it's like, I almost thought like if, if, if we're in jail, you can't just wake up one morning and decide that I don't want to be in jail anymore. You can't be in there, right? So it's like if people have mindset, okay, there is no other alternative. I think in building a business, this doesn't work as well. I think this works better towards like a singular achievement in a way. Mm. But for um, for building a business, um, what helped me a ton is just like building a lot of social pressure, right? So if you look about Antler, if you look okay. at my if you look at my Facebook, if you look at Instagram, if you look at LinkedIn, Twitter. If you go to dinner with me or whatever, there's very seldom, very long time in between me talking about what I'm doing to literally everyone and pulling everyone in, right? That's we'll very smart. Pull you in in our advisory network. We'll, you know, most of my friends who have a little bit of money has invested into our funds. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, so very quickly, failure doesn't become an option, mm. uh, right? And, um, you know, there's a lot of studies on this when it comes to like quitting smoking and all these types of stuff as well, right? You know, the most important way, the best way to stop smoking is just to tell everyone that you stop smoking. That's the only thing you really need to do. Uh, it doesn't always work, but it works apparently better than any other way. And uh, this thing tends to work for me. I think for other founders, it works differently, right? But figure out what that is, right? Whether it's watching motivational movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger every morning or 
you know, uh, meditating or doing yoga or doing sports, whatever it is, but you got to get rid of that mindset that failure might be an option because I think very often people end up giving up too early just because of that. So set up big goals and overshare them with people so you don't have an excuse to <laughs> yeah. abandon them. That's very smart, actually. <laughs> yeah. What are the most common mistakes that you've seen entrepreneurs make? Um, and what advice would you give them to not make those? So front loading I spoke about earlier, so not spending enough time up front. I think there are, and I spoke about the, the kind of mindset of failure. I think one other thing, a mistake I see very often in in founders is um, they don't get comfortable with hustling, right? So, so if, if you're a university student or you work for someone in a company, you're in an environment where people always tell you what to do, right? And uh, you get a task, uh, you have an exam, you got to read these books, whatever it is. As an entrepreneur, there is no one there to tell you what to do. And nobody will automatically come to you and say, hey, can I invest in your business? Nobody will automatically come to you and say, hey, can I work for you? Nobody will automatically come to you and say, hey, can I, can I please be your customer? Yes, at some point in time, that will happen, right? You know, once you build an incredibly successful product um, and your company is growing, that will happen, but it takes a long time for you to get there. And this was obviously a grand awakening for me building something is you kind of feel like if you just have a great idea and you're a great team, these things will kind of magically come together, but they just don't, right? You, you got to learn to hustle. You got to learn to convince people. You got to get comfortable getting no's and getting a lot of them. Mm. You got to be comfortable getting 10 no's from the same person and converting it to 11th yes. Um, you got to be very, get very comfortable with rejection. Um, and a lot of people are naturally not born that way because we're societal, right? Like we live for affirmation in a way, right? So you don't want to make people around you uncomfortable. You don't want to, and, uh, I think in Asia, there's 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 some kind of culture like this. In Norway, it's definitely a culture like this. You should never... In Switzerland too. You don't want to, to bother people. Exactly. Like you don't want to. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> But if you read about the very best founders, like uh, still today, you know, uh, there are, you know, stories of Elon Musk calling up people, asking for advice about specific things with no uh, hesitance, right? Take the Nike founder. He went to... He was a student on vacation in Japan and he, he pretended to be a sports company in the U.S. and went to the big uh, uh, companies there selling sneakers and said, hey, um, we're the biggest distributor of shoes in, in, the, in, in the U.S. We want to sign an agreement. And he didn't have anything. Or Bill Gates went to IBM to sell the first version of Microsoft DOS. They hadn't even built the code. Mm. Or... Uh, um, You know, do you read every entrepreneur story like this and people have been able to build that hustling gene. Take Spotify. They went to 23 investors before the first investor said yes. Everyone said no. Um, and as a founder, you get, you'll get a ton of no's all the time. And, uh, and people just are uncomfortable with, with Maybe that. one way to 
feel better about that because most of the humans, first we we were we were fearful of rejection, but second there is also the cultural influence on I don't want to bother people. One way to think about that as a aspiring entrepreneur is other entrepreneurs who've made it actually love that because they understand. And even if they don't answer directly, it doesn't mean they don't care or they ignore you. It's just, they're so busy. They receive, for example, yesterday I sent you the email. I said, Hey, are you coming tomorrow? I know you probably have 500 or a thousand emails per day. So like, if you, it's actually, if you're hustling and you're chasing, 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 except if they tell you, no, I'm not interested. Right. As long as you don't have a no. And even if you have a no, the no is just moment, a moment in time, yes. but it could change in the future. Therefore, you never, if you if you don't abandon, you're never losing. It's yeah. impossible. The whole game, maybe you just need to build more momentum or yeah. have more customers or have an introduction from the right people to that person. Yeah. And then you can turn that into a personal game. Ga yeah. game. And you're like, mm, you don't want me now. Actually, with some podcast guests, I have that. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll get you. Yes. Like, I'll get you. And I even had the... Um, for example, I went to have uh, the co-founder co of BitMix, Arthur Hayes, and I know a girl who knows him really well. And I was like, can I have an intro? I'll, I'll give you the, the, the deck guest to see all the previous guests, everything. And she answered directly and probably she didn't even ask him because she was like, oh, he's very busy, you know? And I answered, I was like, okay, I'll get him. Like, I'll get him and oh, I'll get him through another way. And, and then in my mind, I was like, that day I'll get him. I'm going to freaking stick it to your face. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to say bitch, but like, you know, like I said, it's just a personal game sure. and it's very healthy. And the people who are there, the people you're trying to reach, they love that yeah. because they can recognize themselves. And like, this yeah. person is actually different. And so you're never bothering if you're trying really hard. Yeah. And if you turn, as you said, if you turn that rejection into positive energy, right? So, um, okay. I'm going to I'm going to convert this person sometime in the future yeah. or uh I'm I'm going to show that I can still do this. Uh so I think if you can turn constructive feedback, negative feedback, rejection into a ton of positive energy, it's very very helpful. But at the beginning it's tough, mm. right? Because we're taught very often to say okay, if you don't get an answer you or people say no, you're just supposed to move on. But as a founder you can't do that because you're trying to to break through the wall and solve a very important problem. So what I encourage a lot of founders to do, like, because I was, I'm not naturally like this. It's just, but you know, it's something I've, I've learned. Um, I think it's, it's worth practicing as a founder, right? Like, so you can do that in any situation that you're in, right? If you're listening to this right now, you know, the next time you're in the room with five people, go up to them and talk about something highly personal or, um, ask for a favor or, um, you know, if you're in uh, walking through a shopping mall, go up to a stranger, like whatever it is, like you can, you can literally practice this stuff all mm -hmm. the time. Um, and then uh, don't be hesitant, right? Learn, learn how to hustle. And then look at people around you who are naturally like that. Almost everyone knows someone like that, right? Who walks into an elevator with 12 strangers, elevator hits the bottom floor. They're friends with everyone. They're going out for drinks with two of them. They're going to... You know, uh, one of the guys' bachelor party next Friday, whatever it is. Like, there are people who are naturally like this, and you mm. can learn a lot from just observing them and spending time with them and so on. Yeah, and worst case, this person is, I mean, if you're really chasing, I'm, I'm just thinking, my, our first company, we built a data analytics one. At this meeting, 
with this woman who had like a really good job in a very big luxury company. And we do the meeting and I'm literally 23 years old or 22 and a half. And in the meeting, she's super enthusiastic. She's like, oh yeah, this is solving all my problem, blah, 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 blah. So I'm like, and we started the company three months before. So I'm there like, I'm going to get the freaking lar second largest luxury group as a client after three months. Woo! This is just before Christmas. So I send a follow-up email after she doesn't answer. It's Christmas. It's fine. Early Jan. I send an email, follow-up email. No answer. I'm like, okay, I, I'm going to wait another two days. I say a follow-up follow, follow email. No answer. Then I start to take it as, I'm like, what is she doing? Like, and because she sold me so much dreams, you know, like, because I, there's so many people who are just, they're very enthusiastic, but like, don't follow up, kind of goes to, in the, also in the, the real world, the friendships, dating, everything is, happens a lot. And yeah. in professional world, so much, especially as an entrepreneur trying yeah. to get business. So I'm like, this, I'm going to turn this into a game, but I almost became a bit crazy. I was like, okay, she doesn't want to answer to my email. I'm going to call her. The day after I call her once, no answer. The following day, I call her twice. No answer. The following day, I call her five, five times. I, I, at some point, I ended up calling her like 10 times in one day. It was crazy. But like at the end of the day, what happened? Like she came back to me. She said, oh, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. You know, I had so many things to do. Obviously, she never became a, a client because she probably thought like this guy is completely crazy. <laughs> yeah. But like, that's it. Yeah. There is another... 7 billion potential customers out there are people you can talk to and if one person doesn't like you it's not the end of the day I don't know you move on <laughs> and then you keep keep them you keep a list of them and then you uh, keep them updated and at some point in time you'll convert some of them right we have that's yeah. a very smart way to do it we have customers yeah. people I hired uh, that we we tried to hire for 3, 4, 5 years the people I tried to hire that I couldn't hire in my last business I could hire in my next business there are investors that you wanted previously you didn't get to get them five years later. I have a great example. There was a guy I emailed about a scholarship, private scholarship to Harvard, and I was there back in 2006. Didn't end up happening. I responded to my last email to him in 2018 when we started Antlers. That's what, uh, 12 years later, and said, hey, you know, you remember this? I recently built this e-commerce company called Solora. We sold it. We're now building a venture capital company. This is our thesis. I'd love to meet them and talk to you about it. And um, he responded and uh, we met up with him. And it's one of us, one of the very first investors in, in our business, put in $10 million. And, you know, that was a no from 2006 <laughs> that covered in 2018. Yeah. So, like, you know, keep at it. That's an amazing example. And it's just like that for everything. <laughs> yeah. Like literally, literally, if you can, you don't fail if you don't stop. Yeah. Basically. Um, Antler has invested in more than 600 startups and your plan by 2030 is 6,000 startups. That's about more or less a thousand startups investment per year for the next six years, or two or three per day. How the hell are you going to do that? Yeah, so um, so we back founders who are building companies from day zero, and um, we like to, to find people and not companies. So we like to start working with people before they got started on building their business, um, or teams that are about to start their business. 
Um, we get now uh, about 120,000 applicants per year of founders who want to work with us. So 120,000 applicants um, compared to Harvard College, they get 60,000. I think Y Combinator gets about 40,000. So we have a tremendous funnel of founders. Mm. We'd love to back more of them. Um, but, you know, we bring in cohorts of 60 to 100 people who want to build something uh, twice a year across now 28 locations across six continents globally. And then we end up investing in about a third to a half of them as they're building their business, coming in with their first first um, uh, coming in with their first money. And then we contribute access to other capital, big networks of talent, big network of advisors. We have offices all across the globe that can help with expansion and so on. So, so that's kind of the process of what we do. Now, how can we make this level of investments? Well. This year, I think we'll make about 400 investments, which which sounds like a lot, um, but we're 300 full-time people in Antler. Mm-hmm. So it's one and a half investments per person per year. Um, it's, you know, 20 to 30 investments in London, 20 to 30 investments in Singapore, 20 to 30 investments in other places. So it's it's a smaller share of the total. But, you know, PitchBook just came out with their uh, their their Q2 report um, Last quarter, apparently, we're we're now the world's most active early stage investor. I saw I saw that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and uh, I think if you're a highly centralized operation, that ends up becoming too much. But for us, you know, it's it's highly highly selective, right? We in in the first half of this year, we backed, uh, we made two point four investments per thousand applicants. So that's mm. so like zero point, and there's two founders, two point one founders per 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 team. So we backed zero point five percent or so of the founders that applied, and our team is working very hands on with those founders and those teams. And um, you know that equated to I think one hundred and one investments or so in Q two this year. Um, but you know again that's that's. Um, one investments per three people in the company. So um, it's it's very, very hands-on. Now, how do we scale that towards 2030? Well, we're setting up a few more locations. We are increasing the size of our funds in some locations. So we're slightly increasing our investment pace. Our founder applicants is growing 2.5x per year. Um, so... You know, I don't think we'll grow our investment pace as fast as we will at the founder applicants, but obviously we 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 gotta take some more of these opportunities of great people who want to work with us and and uh you know we're, we're really building technology on a platform where um we believe will be a very very valuable early stage investor you're fo- you're focusing on pre-seeds you said we back founders right we don't back companies back founders so it's basically the absolute riskiest part of the investing game why so um so when we built solora uh we had this tremendous opportunity to work with some really amazing people um that have built the next generation great companies here in the regions for example 
Nadim and Kevin, who built Gojek, was part of the Solora team. Mm. Chris Feng, who built Shoppe, was part of the Solora team. The Shopback crew was part of the Solora team. Michele Ferrario, who was a mm. guest of yours prior, was part of the Solora team. Aura, Shopback, lots of great companies. And, and um, you start to realize that there's a community and networks where you can find a lot of these great people. And if you have the opportunity to work with them early, um, you can ensure that uh, we have an outsized impact on the business because the earlier days are more important than the later days, as we spoke about many times mm -hmm. in this podcast so far. So you can have an outsized uh, impact on the business. The reason why more people are not doing it is because, as you said, the risk goes up considerably the earlier you're coming. So the way we've set up Antler is we've, want to contribute a lot of value in terms of access to co-founders, validating business models. We have offices that, that host all of these founders for the first four to six months. But through doing that, we get to spend real time together before we invest. Because if you already have a business and you come to me and you ask for an investment, I can't ask you to come. Can you come to my office and, uh, and work with me for three months before I decide where I'm going to invest? Of course you can't because you're running your own business. But prior, we actually get to spend real time together, work together. Like I get to spend when I'm in Singapore, I'm, you know, I'm in the office every day spending time with all the founders that are here. And if we spend three months together, and if you were going to decide if you want to invest in my business and I decide if I want to spend in your business, like the conviction in which you can make that decision is just incredibly higher, right? So... That's so I think it's outsized impact and at the same time, we can remove a lot of the risk by spending real time together. Absolutely. So you lower the risk that way, obviously. And another key point that's really interesting in, is one of the, the only skills that you can, there's almost no data. I mean, maybe the person found another company before, right? But at this stage of the investing process, there is almost no data. Therefore, your only skills that you can make your decision on his judgment. How do you develop judgment? So, well, I think the judgment is around um, the quality of, of the founder and the founding team. And uh, basically, we believe there are two or three traits that are insanely important in the founder. One is that there's a spike. Like, is there something about you is there a skill set that you've developed or something about you that a strength that where you're better than most other people in the world, right? I'd rather identify one thing that you're really great at than eight things you're better than average at. Um, and if I have this, if I can see this one great thing that you're incredible at, I care less about two or three things you're terrible at. Mm. That's one incredible founder trait. Founders are typically quite, quite spiky individuals. So that's kind of one thing we're looking for. We're looking for that, that strength. Um, the second thing we're looking for is drive. So drive is a combination of kind of passion, ambition, and um, having shown the ability to execute, right? So there's a lot of passionate founders out there, but passion itself doesn't create drive. But passion and ambition combined with being able to execute and having shown that in the past is an incredibly important. That's kind of the engine of the founder. And the third thing is this last thing we spoke about earlier about around failure, that we, 
people need to be gritty. They need to have uh, a very strong mindset and a conviction that they're not going to give up on, on building something because you know, building a startup is a high contact sport, right? You need to you need to have a tremendous amount of staying power. So those are the three things we're we're really looking for. Um, and the great things with all three of them is you're not born with it. Um, if you don't have it today, you can develop all three. Mm. So it means that the playing field is kind of wide open for people who want to pursue that. But a lot of people won't have it right now, right? They they might not have developed that strength yet. They might actually not have the drive. They might want to become a founder because it's cool to be a founder or their friends are founders or they read some story that's not because they're actually driven. And they might not have built true grit yet. I think, you know, you build grit in different ways, but definitely one's, one of the ways to do it is to have, have gone through some difficult moments in life. Right? <laughs> <laughs> What's the most difficult moment you've been through life that you think helps you with grit? First in business yeah, and then personal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on the, on the business side, um, I think the the hardest moment was, you know, in in the in the Solora days, um, um, we had a few of those moments where you kind of met the wall, which seemed very difficult to to get through. Right? Like, is is there actually a way around it? You know, sometimes in the in in your business, you you hit this problem that seems insolvable right so let me come with an example so you know um, with Solora when we launched in Indonesia which is the most important market in Southeast Asia there was two to three percent credit card penetration and the way people used to pay on online in in Europe and the US is obviously through cards and that's how people mostly pay these days so how did we solve that we sold that through something called bank transfer so That meant that you can go onto our website, order something, you get a code, you take that code, you go to your bank, you pay with cash, mm. you get another code from the bank, you go back and you check out. So, you know, that means that your checkout process might be half an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, depends how long it is to the bank. Yeah. So you can imagine the can, what do you think the cancellation rate was on something like that? No? Uh, huge. Yeah. Like Obviously, in, because <laughs> the friction is it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. In the 80s, right? And if you combine that with low basket sizes, high customer acquisition costs because your assortment is not there yet, it's it, unprofitable. It, it can it's unprofitable and it can really feel like a problem that is unsolvable, right? And how do you do that? Well, so so we thought, okay, well, you know, can we get people more bank cards? Well, you know, you can't really become a bank. Like it was before GoPay and all this type of stuff. Um uh So we decided to launch this cash and delivery thing. So basically, the instead of the customer going to the bank, they could pay our delivery person. Mm. But then you think about the country of 200 million people and uh, you know tens of thousands of islands and uh, pretty rough infrastructure, sending address from one place to another to another to another onto a truck onto a boat onto a a car to a motorcycle driver and then that customer is going to pay you in cash and then you know, the person 20 dollars in cash 
and then the person is not going to keep the cash for themselves. <laughs> yeah, then you got to bring it all the way back, right? Your, so yeah. then, then you have a whole new problem, right? So like, <laughs> so so there were a few moments like this. This is one of them where you feel that everything is at risk because the fundamentals of why this business model worked in Europe and worked in the US just weren't in place to make it work here. But then we managed to tune this cash and delivery system. We managed to build out infrastructure for our delivery providers. We built tech for them basically where we could track this so that we could reconcile the money once it was paid and not once the money made it all the way back. And then you hand the order responsibility for collecting the money to the logistics mm-hmm. provider instead of yourself. So a lot of the things you can work on, right? But but that was a tough moment because, you know, all of us had quit, quit our job. We were, you know, 100% in on this thing. We, you know, we didn't take much salary. We were staying in, you know, the cheapest hotels, flying on line air across the region, working 100-hour weeks. And, uh, uh, and you don't know whether it was... And then you hired, I, I guess at the time, we hired a 1,000 people or something like that. So you're responsible for a bunch of people as well. So it's it's it's... It's, and I think every startup, unless one who's been very, very lucky, has moments like this where you're like, man, what do I do now? And then just everything, beat, yeah. <laughs> every just feeling things feels black, right? But then you find a way around, typically. Mm. If you're onto solving a problem that should be solved, there is typically a way around. You just sometimes don't see it. Yeah. If there is, if there is problems, there is solutions, otherwise the problem would not even exist yeah. initially because you want to get back to this kind of equilibrium point. It's yeah. more of a spiritual way to look at it, but yeah. like, there is a solution to every problem, otherwise the problem would not exist. Yeah. Yeah. It's just about how do you look at the thing differently? Yeah. Just how, obviously, like it's not just how, but like, yeah. uh, uh, the, the, the perspective by which you look at that. Iterating, iterating trying solutions, um, and the most important thing is not to be there in the headlights, right? And freeze, mm-hmm. which on occasion happens and can be the death of companies. What about personal life? I mean, personal life, it's, um, you know, it's been multiple, uh, you know, difficult situations through life. I think, you know, the hardest period from uh, from a mental and physical perspective was definitely the the military training, um, you know, we obviously like you can you can watch how the selection processes are online, and uh, um, and you can mentally prepare and you can physically prepare, but like once you're uh, once you're in the middle of it, it's uh, it's pretty rough and it changes you, but I think it changes you in a good way. Um, um, so. It's one of those things where I think, you know, since it was more of a physical, when it comes to kind of physical pain and physical experiences like this, it's quite incredible how the human psyche is set up to forget the bad stuff and remember the good stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, but that was definitely uh, a rough period because it's also just such a big change of environment, right? I've been to you know, boarding school in the UK, um, you know, living in a castle, studying, 
talking about peace and love and you back know to, singing songs in the evening and back, back to real life everyone was very understanding <laughs> and then you have some people standing on top of you pushing you into the mud hitting you with sticks and calling you all types of bad things and giving you a little bit extra shit because you then knew you come from boarding school in the UK yeah obviously <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever struggled with mental health throughout this process or building a business or other things that happen? Um, the, the, the main re reason I ask that is because a lot of people were super successful in other people's mind, in normal people's mind. It's mm. this person doesn't have a problem. Yeah. They're stronger than everyone else. They're different. Yeah. They're built different, right? I, 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 I don't think I had kind of an issue with that, but You know, sometimes you wake up, um, there are periods where you're more energized than others. Um, and uh, um, for me, and I, and I kind of learned to kind of realize what those, what those signals are. Um, and for me, it's, it's very tied to uh, the ability to, to just work out and do some physical activity regularly. So there are periods of time where, uh, you know, I end up traveling in a bunch, um, uh, just prioritize work, uh, family, kids, all that type of stuff. And there might be, now it happens very seldom, but, you know, during the slower days, it happened where there was like weeks where uh, I didn't get to, to, to work out. But I'm just more conscious about it now where... Um, You just wake up in the morning and things are less exciting and mm -hmm. uh, you feel a little bit slower. Um, and uh, um, so I think for me, having the ability to be physically active on a regular basis is insanely important to just maintain mental sharpness. Uh, um, but uh, these periods are kind of quite quite short and now I recognize them mm. rather rapidly um, uh, I do think that's I do think it's very important to to try to learn these things about yourself because you know this thing works for me but it doesn't work for some other people especially especially again for entrepreneurs because burnout is a is a big one yeah and like how do you learn to recognize the signs before it's too late and you're not able to work for months or years anymore and yeah. it happens it happens much more than we it's not talked about much yes. but the entrepreneur burnout the actual it's not just oh, i'm tired today i'm a bit depressed it's like i'm actually completely burned out from the inside and i can't work anymore for i don't know how long you experience it uh, when you're building a business actually so um i think if you haven't had the people in your company that have experienced Um, this then uh, you know either you build such a magical culture that it doesn't happen or your company is not growing fast enough but you know it's like uh, I've seen it in Solora I've seen it in Antler there are, are people who've uh, who you know when you go at it at 100% of the time there there will be now and then people have that burnout and, and then they take a bit of a break How do you think you, you can help prevent that? 
because everybody's different. Some people will some people will react differently to these things. Some people will become depressed and start to be sick more often. Some people will you won't realize it, but they start to drink. Yeah. And become, for example, could could become yeah. alcoholic yeah. or take drugs, or some people could become very aggressive and angry. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you also, as an entrepreneur, it's the, the culture is everything and very important, but you also, at some point when you hire people, you hire them and you trust them to be able to take care of themselves because you have a mission to, to I mean, you have to execute on your mission and if you're, you can't become the father or the mother of everyone, right? Yeah, so quite interesting. I don't think at all it's correlated to how much people work, right? I think it's completely uncorrelated to how much people work. I think it's correlated to the culture one has created and the conversations that are being had, right? So um, also if you look at statistics of this globally, actually, like Sweden is one of the countries in the world with the highest amount of, of, of burnout, but mm. it's also one of the countries in the world with the lowest amount of working hours. So mm. I don't think it's... It's it's correlated to how much people are working. I think it's correlated to the conversations you have in the team and the culture you build as a leadership team that then perforates throughout the company. So I think it's very important that to a regular basis to sit down with all the people uh, that report directly into me and that I work with on a regular basis and some of the people reporting into them and just have a conversation about how are things going, how are we working together, what are things we can do better as a company? What can I do better to make this um, um, a better company and, and spend real time doing that, like an hour, one and a half hours. And by doing that, and if the whole company does that on a regular basis, you, you will start to discover the warning signs. And then you tell people, hey, you know, perhaps it's about time to take, take a break or perhaps it's about time to get a coach or you know, you want to talk more about this or perhaps you discuss this with this and this person because, um, uh, but I think very often when these things, when no conversations are being had about it uh, and you can't talk to anyone about what no one experienced and then people just run straight into a wall. Mm. But I don't think it's correlated at all to how much people work. So I found... So we talk about all these, you know, building businesses and hopefully a successful business and people's definition of what success is in life, right? Especially more and more with like all the media and social media and the, the actually the, the Facebook, Instagram, the tech years have been shaping this entire way of people of people seeing success, you know, these overnight successes. And, um, and so one thing I personally experienced and I've obviously been much, much less successful than you or all these other people that we talk about is that the moment I felt the loneliest in my life were actually in those moments that people define as success. So I felt lonely during my twenties when I was building businesses that were I mean, not like multi-billion companies, but like doing well, uh, which building a profitable company is actually very hard. But I was so lonely. Like I was, I don't even think I was that happy, you know. Then another moment was 
doing this last crypto bull run, like making so much money, like where people, you know, people, they have this goal. I want 1 million, I want 10 million, I want that. They think that the day they reach that goal, they're going to be so happy and they're going to change everything. I felt so lonely. First, because I had no one to share this with, almost no one, because no one really understood my age. And I mean, obviously there's a lot of people who do that, but like you don't necessarily know them. Second, I felt like an imposter, had this imposter syndrome. And another moment I felt really lonely was uh, during also COVID, I had this digital nomad lifestyle because my companies, we could do everything remotely because it's data analytics. And because of COVID, obviously you would not go see your clients. So I had this dream for, especially the Gen Z and a lot of millennials, I want to have digital nomad lifestyle. Like I want to be able to go travel there and move there and work from there. And I was super lonely, basically. All these moments that are classified as success by normal people. So my question is, given your achievements are much bigger than mine, you probably, probably also one way or another felt that way. You know, it's kind of lonely at the top or people don't really understand you. So what, and especially when you reach these achievements, why are the achievements that most people could only dream of actually the loneliest moments for high achiever people who achieve those goals? Yeah, I think... Um... Um, so, 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 so the way I think about this whole thing is actually, um, is, um, I think it's useful for me personally to on, on occasion, um, try to be a little bit more lonely. <laughs> okay. So, you know, so yeah, I'm just going to okay. switch it around. Right. So like, um, because, and I, I don't know where this comes from or so on, because I, I definitely have friends and so on that you very much can kind of recognize what you're talking about, but I actually never really felt this way. And I think that I wonder whether it's because I had like a kid at a young age or, uh, you know, I was at boarding school and then I lived in like military barracks with like 24 people in it or, and we did, they become very close friends and, you know, um, or, or whatever it is. I just always feel I've been lucky to be surrounded by, by kind of, people I have a strong kind of meaningful relationship with. So I've never really been lonely. And, but on occasion, what I I um, I feel though is that I, I should on purpose take a little bit of time just on my own, which, which is hard to do because um, you, you know, I really enjoy spending time amongst other people. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I, I tried to for, for at least... Um, a while once a year just take a weekend somewhere and go on vacation on my own okay um after Slora, before uh, antler i spent a week up in the norwegian mountains with the goal to not see any other people um and um now and then i when i travel i try to set off a little bit of because at home i can't do it but uh, when i travel i try to set up a couple of hours you know in the hotel where i'm just alone and, and i think it's it's important to for me, it's important to now and then embrace some loneliness. Um, uh, so Interesting. Like, so, Interesting. You know, so, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it might just be, uh, I, I, I kind of get, 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 get where you're coming from. And I know a lot of people feel that way, but it just, for me, it's, it's somehow kind of, kind of striving to on occasion do a little bit the opposite. <laughs> you talked about, so you you feel great with people. And you have a lot of these people probably became friends along the way. Do you have a lot of friends? So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, 
different type of friends, right? So, um, you know, uh, you have your friends from uh, from the kind of Norwegian days, from boarding school, who are all across the globe. Um, um, from the military, which was a very different experience. Um, and um, uh, I think one thing, the, the one thing that um, I do think is is a, bit, a little bit tough with the type of lives you and I are living in, and I think a lot of people in the world today, is that a lot of your really meaningful relationships are spread out mm. across the globe, right? Now, what that has led to, to me, though, is that the moments where you have kind of real time together uh, becomes even more special. But I think it's very important to 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 take that time on occasion, right? So, for example, there's a very good friend of mine in the U.S. He built number. He's also an entrepreneur. Built a great lot of good companies. We were roommates together in college, and um, you know, we tried to make an effort to to see each other once or twice a year in, in the US. So, you know, I, I go there for business on occasion, but he lives in Atlanta, so he will fly into New York or fly into San Francisco and so on. And we, you know, we we go out for a two to three hour breakfast or, uh, uh, you know, you, you have a dinner together um, and you just end up having a completely different conversation, right? Because there's... There's nothing in between, mm. right? You know, there's someone you're doing business with or there's someone who hasn't seen you through kind of a larger part of your life. Uh, uh, you lose a little bit of, of that special connection. So I think it's very important to, to, uh, to in this digital nomad lifestyle or expat lifestyle that, that you and I are living, we need to, to cherish some of those relationships because uh, otherwise life becomes a little bit fleeting. Mm. You always have the family there, but I think the friend aspect is, is different, right? So, so how, how has, because so, so there is these people who are spread out everywhere and obviously now living in Singapore, you are, your friends, you're probably more the type of people who are, I mean, everybody is brilliant in one way or another, right? But in terms of business and uh, life achievements, probably here, it's the places that attract those kind of people, right? Yeah, Singapore is great. You know, we have a great community of uh, friends through, through the kids, greater community of friends through workouts. We have this like group of people we work out with every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. Um, uh, we have, you know, the people you get to meet through business. And uh, I think what is great about a place like Singapore is, um, you know, we get to meet a lot of really amazing Singaporeans, a lot of people from all across Asia, um, a lot of people from, from the rest all across the world. It becomes a very kind of multifaceted uh, group of friends right and I've you know all since Atlanta College or United World College I've been quite attracted to that because it's so so fascinating we were we were you know we were in my class we were 165 students from 82 nations right there's two from each nation and uh, you know we had people from Palestine and Israel you had people you had 
black South Africans, white South Africans. You had uh, uh, people from Albania and from Serbia. You had people from from um, who grew up in uh, very poor conditions in Africa, and you had the son of the richest person in the Netherlands, right? So you had all of these, um, which just created a really interesting conversations and uh, uh, really, really strong relationships. And Singapore, you have all of that, right? You can, um, you can, you can meet so many interesting people from so many different locations who have so many different type of backgrounds. Uh, and so I think Singapore very much for me becomes, well, I think over time, wherever you live in the world, becomes a very, very quickly around the collection of, of people that you know and you spend time with. What's the most important thing for your for your own happiness? Because I mean, again, you said you have you had a, a a child young, so maybe it probably helped you see things differently from a young age. But like the typical, I'd say, you know, eighteen, twenty years old, like we'll we'll see social media success or oh, I want to be a big YouTuber or I want to be a big entrepreneur or I want to make a lot of money. These are like the big goals you have like early on in life. And then at some point, it might work out or not. If it works out, you might realize that the, uh, you're going to end up in circles where, with other people who are kind of similar in terms of, I'd say, material, ach material achievement, right? But you're going to realize that a lot of these people are normal people. They have their own personal struggles. Uh, some have mental health issues or divorce or problem with kids or, and then you realize almost all this stuff that I was caring about or that I thought was the actual definition of success and my own future happiness doesn't matter that much. And, and, and you start to go back to the complete basics, which is Well, my, my friends, as you said before, like I'm just having like a fun time where we don't talk about business or anything yeah. with this person. And it's, it makes me so happy. Yeah. Or oh, I'm with my girlfriend or my wife and yeah. we just talk about some random shit and yeah. I'm happy. And you realize like the happiness is found in those, in those small things. Yeah. Right. So what's the most, like how much have you been able to dissociate both and, and how much is for you? you know, antler mission and the next business and the next investment and the next uh, successful 100x or 1000x contributing to your happiness? I think so. It's probably different from for anyone, but for me, um, uh, I, purposefulness is, is, is insanely feeling, feeling like I have a purpose and uh, And um, that 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 what I do has 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 a real impact makes me very happy. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and uh, I think you know these things always changes through life. But I always probably you know it might be a weird way to look at it. But but for me it's it it works very well. Is I I try to regularly think about where I want to be a decade from now, um, which changes slowly, right? So, you know, it might be different for people, but I think for most people, you don't wake up one day and you want to be a different place 10 years from now than you were the other day, 
unless there's something major that happened that changed your direction. But so this this thing kind of keeps changing and shifting. And then I tried to think a lot about like, and then I have a five-year plan, a three-year plan, a one-year plan, and then a one-month plan. And, you know, the one-month plan will affect where I am a year from now. The one-year plan will affect where I'm five years from now. And the five-year plan will affect where I'm 10 years from now. And the one-month plan keeps changing, right? Like, what, what do I want to kind of achieve over the next over the next month? Um but it should be connected to where you want to be 10 years ago because if, you, if what you're doing in the next month is uh, is completely disconnected to where you want to be in the future, then you will never get there. Um, and I think a lot of unhappiness in the world is created around um, either people not having that purpose or not being inspired about where they want to be or not having a direction to just kind of jump on some wave and that wave pulls them somewhere. Um or they have some major goal, but what they're doing today is not tied to it in any way, so they, you never get closer, mm-hmm. right? So, and then that plan is pretty simple. It's it's kind of split in three. It's it's business, it's family and friends, and it's health, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I don't live very religiously about it, but I think just just by thinking about it on a regular basis, you end up, being happier and you end up being on a better trajectory than you would have been by not doing it. And it's fun, right? Like the end of each month, beginning of each month, you think about what happened last month. Okay, this, you know, this is, is anything changed about where I want to be a year from now? Is anything changed about to where I want to be 10 years from now? What, what did I do well? Did it didn't work so well? Um, and you also feel like you have some direction and influence on your life right because you're making real decisions mm. right i think when i've been uh, i don't think it happened for a very long period of time because it's kind of been pretty pretty you know it's it's, it's been, been pretty full on but i think there's there's been like small periods of my life where i didn't feel like i had this direction right and i think when you don't have a direction when you don't have a purposefulness if you're not inspired about something and you're kind of driven and you're moving towards that. I think that can create a lot of unhappiness, at least for me, it would do. <laughs> How much time do you spend on this kind of personal planning and goal setting every month? Not much. So I, I do, I try to do it once a month uh, when I'm on the plane, right? So you're on the plane, you're flying somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, it's a great time to reflect, mm-hmm. right? And I've literally written up, like, I also write a little diary. So well, I think since like 1997, I have like, this is like two, 300 pages now of, of notes. It's quite interesting to go back and look at how you thought about the future when you were 18, 19, 20, 25. Um, so, so there's a little log and then there's, um, there's like a one, one month, one year, three year, five year, 10 year. Um, so once a month on the plane, and then once a year around New Year, Christmas, you spend time thinking a little bit more deeply around it. And then uh, uh, recently, I also started having those conversations together with uh, with my son, which is quite interesting because mm-hmm. then you get to have the conversation about well, what does he think about next month, the next 
you know, year, the next 10 years. Um, and I've been doing it with friends. Um, we do it now and then with some, some business partners. It's, uh, it's a meaningful conversation and you definitely feel, uh, better after than before, even if you're just talking to yourself. Mm. <laughs> and that's how actually people can turn dreams into reality. Yeah. Because when you're dreaming about something, it might seem like a dream, but like Craig Reid said, a dream written down with a date becomes a goal. A goal broken down into steps becomes a plan. Yeah. And a plan backed by action makes your dreams come true. Yeah. So you're not that far off yeah. from actually reading your dream, uh, reaching your dreams. Yeah. If you have a more specific approach to long-term planning and yeah. goal setting. And perhaps you never get there, but you get close. And then um, throughout your life, you had purpose, right? So it's, um, uh, you know, and if you don't do it, then you'll never get there. <laughs> so you talk about purpose quite a lot in the last 15 minutes. Have you found your purpose, your life purpose yet? Or is it something that's kind of ever moving and ever changing? Or you feel like you're kind of closer and closer to it? Or with all the self-reflection that you've done, or you're able to say, this is my life purpose and I'm actually doing exactly what I should be doing? Yeah, no, um, I think it's throughout life. Um, I feel I've becoming, I come closer and closer to my purpose. So, you know, um, I, I love the Atlantic college, but I didn't want to be a high school student forever. I love the military and the special forces, but I didn't want to be in special forces forever. Um, I uh, loved Harvard, but I didn't want to be an academic forever. I thought McKinsey was exciting, but I didn't want to make it give advice forever. I thought Solora got even closer because we were building a business. We were hiring people. We were solving a problem, but I didn't want to make people better dressed forever. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> and now with Antler, you know, what do I do? Like I spend my entire time when I work on supporting incredible people and solving important problems. Uh, backing them with capital resources and 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 the platform. Yes, I mean I really found the purpose. Like, I, the, uh, you know, we it's it's very similar to Antler's mission, right? Make make progress inevitable. I mm. believe the world will only move forward if great people spend time innovating, and I'm spending all of my work time supporting great people in in innovating and and moving the world forward. So definitely, for the first time in my entire life. But I spend most of my time on this 100% aligned with 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 my purpose and passion, and that's extremely exciting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really hope everyone gets to feel that at some point of of their life because it's so incredible to spend your time on on what they absolutely want to do. And then the second part of the equation is 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 children, right? It's um, you know. An incredible, uh, it's incredibly purposeful and very, very meaningful. And I think uh, a part of life that just becomes more and more important the older you get, I think. So except from having children earlier, <laughs> how can younger men and women discover their purpose as fast as possible to move on to the next dimension in terms of spiritual life and career? So... Um, seek opportunities 
in which you can be inspired, right? Where And you never know where that would be. So like get out of the box, experience something new, uh, whether that's travel, going to museums, reading, listening, meeting people in your community. Uh, try to as early as possible, get as much uh, exposure as possible to new and interesting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... So that I think is one, like get get exposed to um to 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 more things, to be uh prepared to take some of those opportunities when they come up and how can you be better prepared? Well, like find your strength and develop and hone that, build mental resilience, build drive and ability to execute. And then third is um ensure that um you spend real time thinking about where you want to go and and make real decisions, right? I think a lot of people, and I think parts of my life where I, things haven't moved as, as fast as I wanted it to is, is where I didn't make decisions. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, don't make real decisions about their own life. They end up um, on some sort of journey uh, based on where the wave will take them, right? So something might have happened in high school that led them to choose some specific subjects and that led to them choosing a specific program in university. Mm. And that program means they got this specific job. And then... Uh, and things you, will take care of themselves, yeah. like by magic. And you wake up when you're 62 years old and you never made a real decision on what <laughs> you wanted to do in your life, right? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> And, 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 I, and I spoke to a lot of like older people that I know, and and uh, this is one of the biggest regrets you sometimes hear is like why you know not making decisions and just following whatever wave they ended up riding, right? And if you don't take control of your own life and make real decisions, the world is going to take you somewhere, and most likely it's not going to be where you want to go. Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah, so kind of to sum up this, I mean, if you can't find your purpose, because it's a very difficult thing, obviously, you're just going to be thinking and like, oh, this is my purpose. Try to find your passion because your passion is most likely to to lead you right into your purpose. Yeah. In time. And the more things you get exposed to, the more likely you, you are to, f- to, to find that thing, mm-hmm. right? What's something that you believe in and your belief get stronger every day uh, i i believe stronger and stronger that um we need more great people in the world to spend real time working on solving large problems i think the world is it's facing some, some some pretty big challenges going forward, whether it's within climate change, uh, within education. Uh, education, I think, is insanely important uh, to avoid the world moving towards mass populism or dictatorship. Mm. Uh, healthcare, yeah, it's incredible how how much the 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 population around the world is aging. And it's also incredible that there are billion plus people in the world who don't have basic access to healthcare. 
where you can fix. I remember after after Harvard, I did a small development project in in Zambia, and and people were dying from small cuts where they got an infection in it. We could have, you know, we we could save these people with uh, soap, literally with soap. Um, so we built small soap factories there, and we told people how to to clean wounds and dress wounds. Um, and it's incredible that in today's world we live in a situation where we're kind of facing all of these these major issues, uh, and the only ones that are going to solve them are 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 by great people innovating. And um, if they don't get sold, I think we end up in a world where uh, politics will get more and more extreme. Uh, we've seen parts of the world where dictatorships are getting stronger, and dictatorship works incredibly well if you have an amazing person leading the country. But once that person starts making major mistakes, there are all types of issues for the world, like we're seeing now in Ukraine. Um, and then you have the democracy of the world that is going more and more towards you know, populism, where you have two extreme sides that can't agree. Um, so you know, unless some of the world's smartest people work on, on, uh, on these kind of big problems, um, Upon which, when they sold some of them, they enter into politics. It's, uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's it's not certain that that things will continue to improve as quickly as they have over the last hundred years. Because the improvement the world has seen over the last hundred years is insane. Mm. So if we can continue on that path going forward, um, it's incredible. And I, you know, I believe more and more strongly that. The only way that will happen is if if more great people choose to spend their time solving these problems. One of these really huge thing that people have been working on for a while now, and that recently has been more had this kind of like aha moment is AI. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned education. What are the ways you think AI will most significantly impact education or change education? I mean, AI done well in education means that uh, you can get way more personalized um, uh, education, which means that it's easier for you to to reach your maximum potential, mm. right? So, you know, and and this doesn't matter whether you're you know you're a great student or a bad student; it will help you, right? I remember um, one of the things I thought was quite tough with the last few years in Norwegian school was that um, there was, at least in some subjects, it just became kind of boring because um, you couldn't, right? It, it, was, it was just too easy, some of the stuff, not all of it. Some, uh, some other stuff was difficult, but in some subjects. And then, uh, and then others, you know, it just was more difficult. But, you know, if I could get a personal experience of that training, um, uh, you know, I could get further in, in some areas and I would have better understandings of the areas that I thought was very difficult. Um, and, um, you know, so personalized education, personalized training, um, AI will have a tremendous effect on, um, uh, on a whole other aspect is just access, right? So... Uh, and there, the world is unfortunately far behind where it should be because technology today, you can, you know, now the internet should be the 
the great democratization of education, right? Like whether you have a, a $20 handset or a $1,000 handset, you're technically able to access the same amount of information. The issue has been that accessing information is not the same as being educated. So there needs to be a delivery method mm. where I think AI will just be be better than a one-size-fits-all to ensure that the great the democratization of entrepreneurship will lead to more equality of opportunity, right? So if if today's Einstein is born in a tiny, very poor part of a tiny village in Africa, that person through the day and the great democratization of, of education will have the same opportunity to change the world as Einstein did growing up in, you know, the 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 heydays of you know German science and Simon and science and technology. <laughs> Absolutely. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, it's a tough one. I think one great piece of advice was um, while I was in the Navy SEALs, there was one of my um, teachers from high school who taught peace and conflict studies. And um, he was my house father. So I lived in his, in, in his house, basically. I had about 40 kids living in his house. And and he was part of the special, special air service, the SAS in, in the UK. And uh, I asked him... Uh, you know, what, what, what do you think about me continuing on, on my military journey in the Navy SEALs versus going out there and getting an education and doing something different? And he said, you know, well, you know, you can do an incredible, meaningful job as an operator or a surgeon. You can have immediate impact on a specific person's life, right? So if I'm operating on your heart right now, if you have heart failure and I operate on your heart and I save you, I immediately have an impact on your life. So there are certain roles in life where you have that immediate impact. And there are other roles in life where you have impact through hundreds or millions of people. Let's say you're a teacher, you have impact through 40 people a year that you, you teach in your class. Or if you're an author, anyone who leads your book. Or if you're a business leader, Everyone uses your product, or in my case, supporting a bunch of founders building really great companies. So you got to make a choice on whether you want that immediate impact on a smaller amount of people, but much more meaningful impact, right? If I save your life right now, mm -hmm. that relationship and that impact is very concrete versus having that more in direct impact on a larger amount of people. And and uh, and, uh, and that's how I ended up kind of going going to Harvard and pursuing kind of this part of my life. So, you know, that was definitely very meaningful advice and a meaningful conversation. Um, and I had tons of those on the way. <laughs> Thank you so much for this, Magnus. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. Where can people follow you or learn more about you? Yeah, so um, go on LinkedIn, Magnus Grimland. You can go on uh, Instagram, Magnus Antler. Twitter, I think it's also Magnus Antler. Um, and then check out Antler, antler.co. Uh, 
you know, we'd love to support you if you want to build a business. Amazing. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you.